Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. I hope you brought your armor today because clearly we are going to battle. We are going to battle. If you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and turn right now to the book of Esther. Esther is after the books of Ezra, then Nehemiah, then Esther, then Job, then Psalms. And so if you got a Bible or you have an app, go ahead and turn there. As you saw, we had a little bit of a warrior scene, a little bit of a courtyard scene in a king's court. And uh, that's going to be a lot of our book uh, as we open up the book of Esther today. Hello, everybody, and welcome. My name is Ricky Hemi. Thank you for joining us in person, and thanks for joining us also online. Today is the beginning of a new series titled God's Hidden Presence. And before deep diving into this book, I thought it'd be helpful to begin with a little bit of an introduction and an overview of Esther. So this morning, we're going to read the first eight verses and then we're going to peek ahead at some of the major characters and themes. So please turn there now, Esther 1. I'm going to pray and we're going to jump into this text together. Father God, I just want to say thank you. I want to thank you for just uh, your lavish love in our lives. I want to thank you for being sovereign. When we see the world shaking, when we see kingdoms rising, and, and when we hear of kingdoms falling, nothing surprises you. You are in control. And in those seasons of our lives where we feel like you're silent, in those seasons of our lives where we feel like evil is winning and, 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 and the, the, the evil one is getting his way, we know that you are still working behind the scenes and in the shadows. And that is what we're going to learn in this book. You are all powerful. You know us inside and out. You know our stories. And you are the author of history. History is your story. I pray that we would see that as we open your word this morning. Bless our time together, I pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Esther 1, verse 1, this is what it says. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days... When King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver and a, a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal line was, wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. 
That is the passage we're covering this morning. Now, the book of Esther, it's nestled at the end of the Old Testament books of history. So there's a section of the Old Testament that just details some of Israel's history, their time in the land, their time in exile. And unlike the other historical books, this book is not situated in the Jewish homeland of Israel, nor is it focused on any Israelite king or even on the temple of God. This story today focuses on two Jewish exiles living in the middle of the Persian Empire, an empire located in modern-day Iran around 750 miles from Jerusalem. And these two characters we're going to learn about quite a bit. The first is a young woman named Hadassah, meaning Myrtle. She hides her Jewish identity and goes by the pagan name Esther, meaning star. It's a name derived from the Babylonian goddess Ishtar. And her name has significance because she really is the star of the book. It's known in that region that the myrtle tree produces this this white starburst flower. And so that's why we're assuming that that's her connection between her Jewish name and her her Persian pagan name. Uh, She is a star and the star of this book. Beyond the fact that she was known for being beautiful, she also had a lovely figure, a lovely appearance, the text says. She was also, though, an orphan. She was an orphan raised uh, in a foreign land by her cousin Mordecai, who's the second major Jewish figure in this book. Mordecai is much older than Esther. He serves as Esther's guardian, and he also serves as a guardian for the Jewish people. Now, along with these two Jewish characters are two Persian characters. The first is a great king named Ahasuerus. We just read about him just a moment ago. You will know him better by his Greek name, Xerxes, King Xerxes. And Xerxes is most famous today probably for the Battle of Thermopylae. You might remember uh, the 300 Spartans with King Leonidas. Anybody remember that scene? King Leonidas, they stand at the Battle of Thermopylae. They go against Xerxes in this massive army and they, they actually defeat Xerxes, which is important to this story because what we're, what's happening here in Esther chapter one is this is after the defeat of Thermopylae and Xerxes is not happy about it. And so what Xerxes wants to do is he wants to gather the troops to go back to Greece and defeat them. And, and, and so if you know anything about history, this is, this is a big moment in history. And this is one of the reasons he's having this party. He's having a party to get people to follow him, to get people to pledge allegiance to him, to go back and have an attack. We'll talk about it more in just a little bit. But King Xerxes, he's somebody that was mentioned in the book of Daniel. And if you were with us in the study of Daniel, you, you, you heard about this man. We talked about uh, Assyria and then Babylon and then Persia. And after the Persians comes the Greeks and after the Greeks comes Rome. And, and who, when, when was Jesus born? In what kingdom? Do we remember? The kingdom of Rome, right? And so what we're seeing in this section of the Bible is that God is orchestrating all of history and preparing the entire world for the coming of his son, the Messiah, so even when it seems like all hope is lost, God is still on the, on the throne and he is in control of all things. Daniel was about 50 years before Esther. So 
there's this other character, Haman. There's this, uh, there's the king Ahasuerus, uh, also known as Xerxes. He was wealthy. He was the most influential king in history. He ruled the largest kingdom in the world up to that time. He was revered by his people, not as a man, but as a god. And the second major Persian character is a member of his cabinet, an advisor by the name of Haman. And Haman is really the villain of this story. Haman is really the bad guy. Xerxes is, is the one who appears to be in control, but Haman is working behind the scenes because what we know about Haman is that Haman hated the Jews. And his hatred towards the Jews began all the way back in the book of 1 Samuel about 500 years earlier. And, and, and he'd been holding on to this grudge. And, and so he made it his goal when he had power to enact revenge by using his position of power to annihilate the Jewish people. Which leads to a major question in the book of Esther. And it's this, can God's people be annihilated? How would you answer that question? Can God's people be wiped off from the face of the earth? Can they be annihilated? Can, or, or is God true to his promises? <laughs> is he true to his promises that he'll, he'll multiply and that he'll give them a, a, a land and a hope and a future? Is, is, is God going to be tr true to his word or is God going to be a liar? There have been times in history when God's people feared extinction. Think about slavery in Egypt or consider the challenges of exile in Assyria and Babylon and now in Persia, or better yet, consider the killing of the Messiah at the hands of the religious leaders and the persecution of the early church in Rome. These were all moments in history where people were trying to wipe God's people off of the face of the earth. Similarly, the book of Revelation describes a future time when the Antichrist will attempt to do the very same thing. In the last days, things for Christians will not get easier. They will only get harder as the Antichrist fights against the saints and seeks to wipe them off of the face of the earth. But what we see in all of these stories, from the Old Testament to the New Testament and what you can expect in the future, is that God's people, when they are thrust into the crucible of persecution, they don't actually burn up they get stronger. Do you hear that? When God's people face trials, when God's people face suffering, when God's people face pressure from the governing authorities, when God's people face extinction, instead of burning up, instead of shriveling up, instead of hiding in the caves, they actually get Stronger, And that is because what I want you to see through the book of Esther is this. God's people cannot be annihilated. His people cannot be annihilated. Haman wanted to wipe the Jews from the face of the earth, but God was going to use the Jews to bring about his anointed one, Jesus Christ, the savior of the world. And so as you read this book, you're going to notice that one character... One character is conspicuously absent in this book. We learn about Xerxes. 
We learn about Esther. We learn about Mordecai. We learn about Haman. But do you know whose name is never mentioned one time in the book of Esther? God. Not once. It's the only book in the entire Bible where God is not named once. He is not mentioned once. There's no reference to even to, to the law of Moses. Not even once. God seems absent in the book of Esther. And so Esther was written to force us to ask this question, where is God? This is the question of our entire series. This is the title of today's sermon. And this is a question that I believe is still being asked today. When we turn on the news at night or in the morning, or maybe you get up and you read the news, or maybe you've been watching as, you know, uh, we're coming upon election year. Things about to get crazy once again, right? People get really crazy. We see, uh, you know, everybody's true colors. When we turn on the news and we see what's happening around the globe, maybe at times you're like me and you're saying, God, where are you? When we open up social media, and we read through the comment sections. You ever do that? <laughs> Man, people are ugly, aren't they? You read through comment sections on YouTube. You read through them on viral videos. And, and you see the true heart. You see people's true colors. And you can't help but ask the question, God, where are you? Or maybe when you hear about injustices on the earth. Or maybe when you survey disasters like fires in Maui or hurricanes or, or earthquakes and, and these things happen and the immediate response is, God, where are you? Or what about when you see immorality? Immorality running rampant in California and across the United States and, and even across the globe. Good called evil, evil called good. You see that happening and you're saying, God, where are you at? When you see organizations and governments seeking to silence Christians, when you see people seeking to censor the freedom of speech, God, where are you? Am I talking to anybody? Have you guys ever felt that? We are living, I believe, we are living in a crazy time, which is why I chose to preach through a crazy book called Esther. <laughs> because I think that this book has answers for us in our time. We are living in a time, if we're being honest, as much as I want every Sunday to be happy and joyful and to be full of excitement and for us to leave with just that joy of the Lord, which we can have that no matter what we go through, I also want to be real. And what we are really going through in the world today is quite disturbing. We live in a disturbing time. Everybody knows it. Everyone's been saying it since 2020. We live in unprecedented times. And so instead of just letting the times go by and sit back and watching, sometimes we need to ask, God, what are you wanting to do through us in a time such as this? Maybe you've prepared us for such a time as this. God, where are you? While God is not named in the book of Esther, I want you to know he's not absent. In fact, God is the central character of the entire story. 
He's in the shadows, accomplishing his purpose and rescuing his people. And so what I want you to see is that sometimes silence in your life, if you've ever felt God silent in your life, sometimes the silence is actually preparation for such a time as this. Sometimes he is preparing you, his church, his people, for something great. Esther is the story of God's providence. It's the story of his secret control of all things and the beautiful truth that God uses ordinary flawed people to accomplish his plans, which leads us to the major themes of the book. Theme number one is, that, is this, God's hidden presence, which is the title of our series. What I want you to see through this book is that just because you don't feel God at times doesn't mean he isn't there. Sometimes God's presence is tangible in our lives. Like maybe at a worship night or maybe when you went to summer camp or maybe you did VBS or, or maybe you did a missions trip or, or maybe you just had a spiritual breakthrough of some kind in your life. And when you have those moments, you just feel him everywhere. And there's this joy and there's this power and his feeling is tangible. Maybe it was when you got baptized. Maybe it was when you believed in him for the first time and, and you just feel him and sense him and, and it is so powerful and tangible. Other times, though, life is mundane. And following the Lord seems hard. Esther's going to show us that there are times in life, in the life of every Christian, where it feels like the heavens are brass. There are the times in the life of every Christian where it feels like our prayers are going up but they're bouncing off the wall and coming right back down. There are times in the lives of every Christian where it feels that God is far away and he's far away in the seasons where we need him the most. And, and as I was thinking about this this week, it made me think of my own kids and what I do every single night as I put them down for bed. So every night I take my kids upstairs, I pray over them, I read with them, we sing some songs together and I tuck them in for bed, I give them a kiss. And as I'm walking away from their room and I head downstairs, the whole time I'm walking away, they're yelling out, Daddy, love you. Love you to the moon and back. Love you to heaven and back. And I go down the stairs and they're yelling louder and louder, Daddy. I'm like, I know, guys. <laughs> I love you too. I get downstairs. If they're feeling really desperate, they have an Alexa in their room. Alexa, make an announcement. <laughs> Daddy, I love you. Good night. Thank you for being a good daddy. Alexa, make an announcement. I love you guys. Good night. Okay, and this goes on for what feels like 30 minutes every single night. Because here's why they do this. Here's why they do this. Because they feel like once it's silent in their room, that daddy's absent. But I'm not. I'm still right there. I, I'm still right there there. What I want you to see is that divine silence is not divine absence. And some of you need to hear that today. 
Because you are going through something like an Esther is going through, like the exiles were going through. You are enduring a season of life that doesn't make sense. Things are hard. Things are out of control. Things seem too big for you. You're calling out to God. Your prayer is going up and it seems to just come right back down. God, where are you? I see the craziness in my life and in my world. I believe that you can fix it, but where are you? You need to remember that divine silence is not divine absence. When God is silent, it doesn't mean he's not concerned. Esther is a reminder that you have, I hope you know, you have the same amount of God's presence with you everywhere you go. In the New Testament, we read that when we believe in Jesus Christ, he sends his Holy Spirit to live in us. You take God with you everywhere you go. You have the same amount of God at summer camp as you do at school. You have the same amount of God here in this room as you do at work. You take God with you everywhere you go. He is never absent from your life. And in this book, although his name is never once mentioned, we know that he is clearly orchestrating every single event. The same is true in your life. His fingerprints are all over you, whether you see it or not, whether you feel him or not. His name may appear nowhere right now in your life, but his fingerprints are everywhere. He is working behind the scenes. He is with you always to the end of the earth. He says, be strong and courageous for I, the Lord, your God, am with you. Can I get an amen, South Valley? He is with us. That is what this book is about. Theme number two is God's perfect timing. When God is silent, it feels like he doesn't care. But when you continue to trust and you continue to believe, he's going to come through at just the right moment. His timing is not like ours, okay? I have a lot of things I'm still waiting for God to do. I have a lot of things I'm praying about that I wish he would have done something about a long time ago. But his timing is better than mine. You know what word we're going to use over and over throughout this series? The word coincidence. Because what appears to us as random chance is in fact overseen by a sovereign God who knows all, even the number of hairs on our head. God is in control. He says in Isaiah, I am God, there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand. I will do all that I please. He is in ultimate control. And what I want you to know in your life is there, there are no coincidences with God. Albert Einstein, he says coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. No coincidences with him. Things in your life may be a surprise to you, but they are never a surprise to him. And what I want you to see in Esther is that it actually shows that God has a little bit of a sense of humor. Uh, there's something called irony in Esther. Every time it seems like the bad guys, like the enemy is going to win, what God does is he takes the enemy's plans and he uses the enemy's plans against them and the things that they plot for the people of God end up becoming their own ruin because God uses coincidence, God uses irony, God even laughs when people try to fight against him. There's comedy in the book. There, here's... 
theme number three, and that is God's power over history. Esther, we're going to see, is a historical book. We're going to learn a lot about Persia and what was going on in the Middle East during that time and a lot about these kings and a lot about what happened in their courts. And, and that's why we have the crazy battle scene opening video because a lot is happening around a feast, a party where wine is flowing and, and people, it's a very debauched lifestyle, a very pagan world that these Jews are living in. But even in this pagan world, God is still sovereign over history. God is powerful. He is the one writing the story. And this is important today because when we turn on the news, we see a bunch of talking heads debating over everything happening on the planet, right? And we see a lot of fear-mongering today. We see a lot of, you know, people trying to, to, you know, get people rallied up or stirred up or frightful. And, and, and you turn on the news and you read America, you hear America this and China that and Russia this and Ukraine that and Putin this and Biden that and Trump this and Hillary that. And, and you see all these talking heads and on and on and on and on they go. And, and, and for us, we see it and we begin to obsess over nations and over leaders because they they seem so strong on the surface. But they're worms compared to God. They're nothing compared to God. It is natural for us as human beings to worry about the future. Could, could you imagine living as an exile in Persia, in this pagan land? Think of how natural it would have been to worry about the future. We do that. We worry about what the world's gonna look like for our children. We worry about what the world's gonna look like for our grandchildren. They're, that's totally natural. And we should do all that we can to fight against evil and to leave the world in a, a better place, hopefully for them so that they can thrive. But believe it, or not, we are not the saviors of the world. Jesus Christ is. And so Esther is a reminder to fight for what's right, but remember in the end that Jesus is the only one with complete control of history. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 2, why are the nations so angry? Doesn't <laughs> this sound like current day? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth, they prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then in anger, he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. What we're gonna see in this book, and what I hope you remember in your own life, is that there is one true king of heaven and earth. His name is Jesus Christ. There is one everlasting kingdom. There is only one throne where their king will sit down and rule forever for, 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 and cover all the earth and cover all of existence. His name is Jesus and it's Jesus' kingdom. Jesus is a greater king with a greater power, greater wealth, greater authority than any other king and kingdom in all of history. Which leads to theme number four in the book of Esther. And that is God's plan of redemption. History is all about this. God's plan of redemption. 
In the Old Testament, even when other nations were in control, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, God was still behind the scenes, pushing everything in the direction that he wanted for the preparation of his son. When his son came into the world, he came into a Roman, uh, he came into, uh, into Rome uh, uh, under the authority of Rome, but the world was united under one language, which is the first time since Babel, uh, the Tower of Babel, where everybody was basically speaking the same language on earth. Everyone was speaking Greece. There was something called the Pax Romana, where you could travel and you could go around the Roman Empire and travel the known world with relative of ease and safety. That is the time that Jesus stepped onto the planet and was born in a little town called Bethlehem. That is the kingdom that the church originally birthed in. And it was the church that went across the globe. And now we're in a little town called Lemoore, still talking about King Jesus. Everything was, was being orchestrated by God behind the scenes. And once again, we live in a different time of history, but God is orchestrating everything behind the scenes for the coming of his son. He did it in the Old Testament, which the Old Testament is split between before Jesus and then the coming of Jesus. And then the New Testament ends with the return of Jesus, which is God's plan of redemption. And all of history is working in that direction. And here's what I want you to see. No matter what the enemy may do, and you probably see evidence of the enemy now more than ever before in your life. When you open a newspaper, when you look on social media, I'm willing to bet you sense the enemy's presence more now in the day and age that we're living in today than you ever have in your entire life. But no matter what the enemy may do, nothing can thwart God's plan of redemption. Humans like Haman, Xerxes' trusted advisor, have tried before to annihilate the people of God, but their plots always fail in dramatic fashion. In the same way, Satan will rise up in the last days to thwart God's redemptive purpose, but he will fall flat on his face because to be in Christ is to be on the winning side of history. To be in Christ is to be victors even in the face of life's greatest threats. So let's look really quickly at chapter one. It sets the scene for these epic themes and events. It's an introduction to one of the greatest stories ever told. If you've read Esther, you know that it has all the ingredients that people through the ages have most loved in an epic story. There's a beautiful, courageous heroine, a beautiful woman who's a hero of this story. There's a romantic love thread, a dire threat to the good characters, a thoroughly evil villain, suspense, dramatic irony, evocative descriptions of exotic places. There's moral ambiguity throughout the, the story and a sudden reversal of action, poetic justice, and a happy ending. And it all begins in a lavish palace with a lavish feast. And the opening is meant to make us feel small. It's supposed to make us feel uncomfortable. How could such a tiny person a little Jewish woman named Esther fight back against a monstrosity like Persia. Let's look at the verses again. Verse three, Ahasuerus gave a feast for all his officials and servants. 
The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Now, I must admit, I enjoy a good party. Any of you in this room like to go to parties? Okay, I like, you guys know this already. I like food, okay? I like people. And uh, the more food, the more people, the better, all right? So, so I'm, I'm just that way. This was an epic party, Okay, this was not a come over to my house one night and let's hang out. This was 180 days of partying. This was a sixth month party. And it was a party. Some of you are like, man, I want to go to that party. <laughs> yeah, like that's the kind of party I want to throw. Six months. And this party was meant to make you gawk. Okay, it was held at the royal court in Susa, the citadel of Susa. Okay, I don't know if you've ever been on like a, a tour of a, of a famous building or a mansion and you go through the mansion and you're like, oh my gosh, I'd love to drink out of those goblets. How nice would it be to sleep in that bed? How great would it be to wake up and have my breakfast served at that little you know, spot look, overlooking that amazing garden? That's what Xerxes was doing. He was inviting people into his mansion, which this is unprecedented. This is not stuff that kings normally do. He was inviting them in to look at his glorious lifestyle, his white cotton curtains and his golden couches and his purple threads and his golden mugs. And, and the reason he was doing that is because, you know, he didn't have Instagram to post all that stuff on. <laughs> so how is he going to get the word out? except for inviting them in to take a look and see it. And what also he gave during this feast, something that not everybody does, but he did it. He gave everyone, he offered an open bar. An open bar with not just, you know, the cheap stuff, but the good stuff. It says that he gave the king's wine in abundance and said, drink as much as you want. He has an open bar. His home is open. He's inviting people in. This is a really unprecedented thing. And, and historians, why is he doing this? Historians point out that feasts like this, number one, they were notoriously debauched. Okay, there was, we're gonna hear, there's a lot of immorality going on at these feasts. A lot. Okay, these are not good parties. These are naughty parties, all right? Just, to, just so you know. Xerxes, though, was having this, party for a reason. Xerxes wanted to defeat who? Remember who I said in the beginning? Greece. And in order to get people to follow him, his servants out of all those provinces that are mentioned at the beginning of the book, 127 provinces, he's bringing in military people from his vast kingdom to come and party and drink and eat with him around beautiful women and all this fine stuff. And, and, and it was a way for him to woo the people to follow him into battle. He was set on conquering Greece, but to do that, he needed everyone in his corner. And so the description of the banquet focuses on the opulence of its setting in the king's garden and the abundance of the king's wine. 
And they emphasize his wealth and his power and, 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 and how he's, he has this authority over this kingdom. And, and we know that this wealth was unmatched because later on, when Alexander the Great came upon this citadel in Susa, he re- recorded that, that he found 1,200 tons of gold and silver and 270 tons of minted gold coins. Okay, this was one of the wealthiest kingdoms in world history. And this is where our story in Esther begins. And I wanted to start here today because what I want you to do through this series is I want you to put yourself in the shoes of a Jew living in this time. Because the pomp and the power of these great nations must have felt overwhelming. What could a little Jewish woman do in light of that kind of power, in light of that kind of authority, in light of that kind of wealth. Maybe you've thought that today in your own life. What could I possibly do to stop the destruction of California? What could I possibly do to stop the, the you know, backsliding and, and the moral downgrading of, of our nation? What can I do to, you probably at times step back and ask those questions. What can I do? I feel so small. I can't possibly change things. I can't possibly offer anything. But what I want you to see is that all these nations that we talk about, Greece, Babylon, Persia, there has been. Where is the Persia of Xerxes today? Where is the Babylon of Nebuchadnezzar now? Where is the Greece of Alexander the Great or the Rome of Caesar Augustus or the Egypt of Pharaoh? What we see in history is that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Kings come and kings go. But Jesus' power and dominion knows no end. If you belong to Jesus, you're on the winning side of history. You may feel small, but you have power behind you to topple even the greatest foe. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. God uses even morally questionable people to do extraordinary things. I wanna just say this up front. Esther is no Daniel. Daniel was a man of integrity. Daniel was a man of conviction. Esther becomes a hero, but she's not like Daniel. She doesn't refuse the pagan name. She accepts the pagan name. She doesn't refuse to become a concubine in the king's court. She actually goes with the program. There's no, in, there's no interest in the Jewish law. Okay, that She is a morally questionable character. And I'm not trying to downgrade her. She is, she's used by God to do extraordinary things. And she's a hero for a reason. But what I want you to see is that God uses even morally questionable people. Why is that good news? Because I think that there are probably in this room a few morally questionable people. We don't always have it all together. We don't always stand on our convictions. There was a, Esther was a work in progress. 
She got to this point where she was bold and courageous and she, she saved her people. But for many years, she just went along with the program, as did Mordecai. In fact, if you know anything about this time in history, Esther and Mordecai, uh, King Darius, who is ex King Xerxes' father, he already let the Jews go and said they could go back to Israel and rebuild the temple and start to be in Israel again. But some Jews said, no, we like it better in Persia. Esther would have been among those Jews. She could have been in the kingdom rebuilding, but she stayed back and she stayed back for good reason. Could God had a good plan and a good purpose for her. And he was working through her life and through Mordecai's life, even when things were messy and don't quite make sense. And, and I share that with you because that's how God works today. There are many people who step foot in this church who are living morally questionable lives. And there have been times where people have confronted me saying, and look, we're gonna call you to truth, just so you know, right? If you're part of South Valley, we are going to call you to the truth because we are unashamed of the truth. But I also want you to know that there is space for you to figure things out. This is a safe place for you. This is a safe place for you. We, we don't expect you to walk through the doors walking in perfect union with God. We expect you to walk through the doors having lots of questions, lots of concerns, wondering how much of what the world is telling me is true and how much of what this is, is telling me is true and where do I stand and having to figure that out and being on that journey. And even if you are in that spot, what I want you to see through Esther, God can still use you. Esther is about people who are flawed being used by God and his plans and purposes overcoming their flaws and them learning along the way. South Valley is a place for you to learn along the way. My hope is that you'd show up day one and you'd fall down on your knees and you say, God, whatever you want, I am all in. And that's how, that's what happened to me. It was radical. But others in this room, it's gonna be more gradual. And we wanna walk with you. We also wanna call you to the truth in your journey with Christ because the truth of God is what actually sets you free. So throughout this series, here's the question for you. What kingdom do you identify with? Are you a citizen of earth or are you a citizen of heaven? You and I have something in common with Esther we too are exiles. Peter says it this way, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. We are exiles, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or, or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Three takeaways today. Number one, take time this week to read Esther on your own. It's 10 chapters, pretty quick read. Soap through the book. Scripture, observation, application, 
prayer. Read a chapter, write about it in a journal. Let God teach you and notice why this book is different than other books and why this book is often not preached. In churches, you don't hear this book very preached very often. It's very unusual, but I feel like it's perfect for the time we're living in. Number two, determine which kingdom you're living for. The world's gonna recruit you. <laughs> we're gonna recruit you. Where are you gonna land? Are you gonna build your life on a kingdom that will rise and fall or are you gonna build your life on a kingdom that will last forever? Is your king the, the rulers and the powerful and the popular of this world or is your king the ruler of all, King Jesus? Which kingdom are you living for? And finally, number three, refuse to conform. Refuse to conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do you know how that happens? By spending time in God's word, by spending time in prayer, by spending time with other believers, by making worship a priority and letting God speak over your life so that you can see what is true and what is a lie. And you could build your life on the rock. And when the winds come, shake against the house of your life, you will not be brought down because the problems and the suffering and the persecution, instead of it burning you up and breaking you down, it will in fact make you stronger because you worship a God who is greater than anything you'll face in this world. Amen. Father God, thank you for this amazing story. And I pray right now as we prepare ourselves for this series that you would give us a heart of obedience, that you would give us a heart of trust. I pray, Lord, that we would look at the eyes of the world through the eyes of faith, that we would look at the world through the eyes of the lens of scripture. I pray, Lord, that we would not be afraid of the challenges we face, that we would not be afraid of, of uh, things that seem too big and powerful for us. I pray, Lord, that you would use us, that we would be faithful and true, and that we would see your fingerprints all over our lives. And for those who feel like you're silent in their lives today, make yourself known. Give them the ability to trust you and to follow you with their whole heart. We love you and praise you. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.